Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined by Terry Fakes. We are continuing into books that have really influenced us. And this book is a behemoth. It's called A Secular Age by Charles Taylor. We'll get to in a minute how we discovered Charles Taylor. I have a sense that we have a similar route to Charles Taylor. But I also just want to uh, frame up this episode. When we started talking about doing this series, some of this is, hey, these are great books. You should read them. They made a big impact. And I think that you'll Uh love them. I mean, I can think of so many that we've done like that. The Peterson books, the Jerry Bridges book. Right. This is is one of those books that I hope um, maybe by discussing it, this would be an entry for people to read this book. But at the same time, I, I like listening to podcast episodes and audiobooks and things that are great summaries of certain concepts to where I don't have to read this book. Right. And uh, for any of you that go look at this book on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or somewhere, you'll see it's a it's a 700-page book of philosophy and social commentary. It, it's a tough one to get through. And so what I really want to do in this one is open the door to this book. This is not by any means a summary uh, that would that would take us maybe 24 hours of marathon podcasting. But just some concepts that we found really helpful, I think, would be the goal of what we're doing. I think that's the takeaway from this podcast, hopefully, because I know marriages that are built on less commitment than it would take to read this entire book. Uh, it It is an investment. OK, that's an exaggeration, but it's an investment and it's a commitment. But there are some really key ideas. And I think you said something when we were talking uh, earlier, that if people could hear this and say, ah, I've been looking for a term to describe this phenomenon that I am seeing. And I think Taylor does a really good job. His, his terms are not easy to remember, but when you hear them explained, you'll go, ah, yes, I, I know what that is. Mm-hmm. So he's the book is key to me because of the ideas that he crystallizes. So I think I think people will find uh, the terms a little off-putting, but I think they'll find the ideas very much welcome. And then I want to mention as well, we're doing this podcast over this book, but the, but there's actually, and, and this will let you know what kind of book this is. There's a companion book uh, that would actually be a great read. I would recommend this book to anybody. This would called, be the one to read. Yeah, yeah, how not to be secular by James K. A. Smith, and it is a book that is written to summarize and maybe popularize a secular age. And so you've got a secular age, then you have the interpretation of of a secular age by James K. Smith is not exactly the same. Smith is going to do his own thing with some of the concepts, but it's, it's, it's a summary Mm -hmm. and interpretation. And that book is not an easy read by any means, but uh, very profitable to read and and very thought provoking. Yes. And much shorter. Yeah. So let's let's start uh, really where where you have to start with this book by the title, A Secular Age. And what Taylor wants to do at the beginning of this book is define what it means to be secular. Now, we think secular um, when we say this word, a lot of times we'll think of something like secular as opposed to religious or as opposed to sectarian. Even Um, we think about secular in terms of religion, but also government, also public space. And what Taylor's going to do is he's going to lay out three layers, three definitions almost of what it means to be secular. First one is probably what we think of most often when we say secular, and that is a political system in which you are 
you you can inhabit that political space without encountering God. So this this would mean like any government system that doesn't have a state church, that doesn't have a religious mm-hmm. component to it. That would be a secular space. Secondly, you you can have secularity that is more oriented towards your public life. So a, a secular age in this sense would be you can inhabit the public square. You can be a functional member of society. You can have all the things that everybody else has experientially, rights, everything, without having a religious faith. So the way that uh, Taylor defines this is kind of a interesting way to put this in the way we would talk, but it really captures this whole public life of secularity. Um, he says, these have allegedly been emptied of God or any reference to ultimate reality or taken from another side as we function within various spheres of activity, whether that's economic, political, cultural, education, professional, recreational, the norms and principles we follow, the deliberations we engage in don't refer us to God or any religious beliefs. The considerations we act on are, are rational in each sphere. Um, like I said, th- this is probably something we all sense that we inhabit, a public space that is free from overt religious commitments. That's probably mm-hmm. going to sound very familiar to most people. And then we have the third definition, and this is the one that that Taylor wants to use throughout the book. This is where the conditions of belief have shifted in a society to where I would put it the inertia is towards unbelief as opposed Mm -hmm. to belief. So one of the things that Taylor's going to do in the book is he's going to basically tell a story of society from the Middle Ages where you had a universally, in in Western Europe, you had a universally Christian society. Mm -hmm. And the way that that developed into a society today in the West where you have a secular society. And for him, secular in this sense, he defines as the shift to secularity consists, among other things, of a move from a society where belief in God is unchallenged and indeed unproblematic to one in which it is understood to be as one option among others and frequently not the easiest option to embrace. That's a great definition of what he's really talking about. Yeah, I completely agree. I I wrote that down in my notes as well and highlighted it. That is a great way to think about secularity. And uh, James K.A. Smith comments on that with one of the best comments in his book is, so it's not that we have changed becoming secular that people no longer believe in God. That's true. But actually, it's not an age of unbelief. It's an age of believing otherwise. In other words, a secular age is one in which belief in God is one of many belief options. And that's one thing I think, particularly with apologetics, as we look at the world and we say, well, you either believe in God or you believe in nothing. And that's not Mm -hmm. the case. A secular age is one in which you're in a marketplace of, quote, religions or belief systems that make sense out of life. And Christianity or belief in God, more accurately, is just one of them. And as you said, in our secular age, it's probably one of the harder ones for most people mm-hmm. to get over and and agree with. Yeah, and I, I think if you bring this down to the felt 
level of experience, this this mm-hmm. makes a ton of sense. I mean, on a philosophical level, uh, it can be a little bit unapproachable, but on a lived level, does it feel to you like it's more difficult to be a Christian in today's world? Does it feel like as a Christian, you're swimming against the tide in public life, in government, in education, in all these different spheres? Do you feel like um, the prevailing cultural norms are foreign to Christian beliefs? That's what this is describing, is that all of a sudden you live in a society where the norms, the people in power, the institutions are free from Christian beliefs. And outside of maybe the church or Christian schools or Christian culture in certain outposts in America, and certainly in Western Europe, this is the reality. And so that feeling of, I don't think everybody shares my beliefs anymore, that's secularity. And and so what he's describing is how does a culture become that way? And and like we said at the beginning, I think that's one of the values. That's really the reason of doing a book like this is to give a conceptual framework to experiences that almost everybody could identify is, yeah, yeah, it does seem like your faith is not welcome in the public square anymore. Okay, that's secularism. Yes, that, that it is just one in the marketplace of ideas. There's nothing special about it. In fact, it's getting harder and harder to believe it. That is secularism. That's the world we live in. You know, and several things have had to happen historically for us to get to this point. And we'll just summarize his points on this. But basically, if you go back to the Middle Ages, like you said, the predominant view and really the only way to make sense of life was a a belief in God, a belief in some transcendent being that made sense out of your life. And how do I make sense out of suffering in this life? Well, there's reward in the next life. And if you didn't believe in God, you really had a bit of an existential crisis, like, well, then where did I come from? Why am I here? What is the meaning of life? You really couldn't answer those questions very well. But as you move through the Enlightenment, uh, you get the theory of evolution, you get the rise of science explaining the answers to what is this place and how do we inhabit it, you get a form of humanism, not belief in God, but humans and that we are sort of the end-all be-all, you get a form of humanism that can now propose answers to enough of those questions that you no longer have to believe in God in order to have some way to make sense of the world and find meaning. And so over maybe the last hundred years or so, you see other options pop up. And uh, where you're familiar with some of those options, you know, naturalism, Darwinism. In other words, they are really ways of providing meaning in life without appealing to a belief in God. We now inhabit a full-fledged, full-grown secular age where there are many other choices for belief out there. Yeah, that's a, that is a perfect way to put it, um, that you need certain worldview cornerstones. Mm-hmm. And uh, those didn't exist for secularity, for humanism, a couple hundred years ago. Now they right. do. You know, a few years ago, you could say, well, if God doesn't exist, how did we get here? That's an easily answerable question for a secular person now. Uh, you know, if, if if God doesn't exist, what's the meaning of all this? That still, I think, is kind of a difficult question, but one that there are systems to provide answers to. There's tools now available to construct a worldview without God. And uh, that's that's one of the keys to a secular age, a secular society. 
And I, I think one of the things that Taylor does so well, if he does it at length, I will say that, but one of the things he does so well is articulating the shifts that led people to be able to construct a worldview without reference to God. Yes, exactly. And, you know, you, you made a good point. Just because there are other options to make sense of the world and answer the ultimate questions, it doesn't mean that they are true. It just means that they are psychologically satisfying. And this leads me, if you want to go there at this point, but it leads to another one of his ideas. When you, in older times, you would look out at the world and you would say, look, my beliefs about the world have to make sense of this whole universe and how do I fit in and that sort of thing. And I'm clearly not the center of the universe. And how do I make sense of this? And obviously belief in God was the preferred and really the only way to make sense of it. But it's not that the secular age has come up with ideas and say, you know what, this answer, uh, the Big Bang Theory, evolution, et cetera, are as true and explain everything in the universe. The quote from, I believe it was Dawkins, who said, it's now possible to be an intellectually satisfied atheist because of that. That's an insightful point. He didn't say we can now give you the true explanation of the universe, or you can't. Those, some of those theories are clearly not true. Nevertheless, it was satisfying. Well, that marks a really different shift. And that comes to the idea of Taylor's, the idea of a porous self and the idea of a buffered self is exactly what world are you trying to make sense of? And maybe this is a good time to define what a porous and a buffered self are, because it's not that the answers are so powerful. It's we began to look at it from a different point of view. Yeah, I, I love the way you frame that, because these are the two terms I think that are the most difficult to grasp. There's, there's just not very much familiarity. I think one of the things about this book is Taylor is by trade a philosopher. He is a mm -hmm. he's a teacher. He's a professional philosopher. He writes technical philosophy. One of the things you do in technical philosophy is you come up with concepts and then explore their relationships with other concepts, their natural ends. And so what he's doing a lot of times is he's taking something, he's putting a new label on it conceptually, and then showing how that makes sense of, of the world and the other things that we know. So he 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 basically porous and buffered self. Those are inventions of Charles Taylor. And so if you've never heard this before, uh, it's because you haven't read this book. I mean, there, it's not like he's grabbing something that's out there and talking about it. He's creating ways to talk about the world in order to try to to explain things. So the porous self and the buffered self uh, are those new kinds of concepts. And basically, like you said you have an existence which we would consider the poorest self, which lives in an enchanted world. There's a connection and um, there's a permeability between the self and the outside world. And so we think of things like in the Bible, um, what's the reason that someone might be doing something? Well, they may be possessed by a demon. So you have uh, an explanation that relies on the enchanting of the world, the supernatural of the world that explains the things that are go going on. And we, as people, the poorest self, he says, is vulnerable to spirits, demons, cosmic forces. And along with this go certain fears and certain circumstances. The buffered self, in contrast, as you can tell by the 
nomenclature has been taken out of this world of, of fear. It is not subject to the supernatural. It is not subject to fear of other forces in the world that um, would inform and define the self. It is a self-contained, self-defined vision of the self. What is necessary for a person is inside that person. So this is where you get something like expressive individualism. What makes me most human is not a reference to anything outside of myself. It is the full expression of what is inside myself. So you have the poorest self, like you said, that is kind of what we consider a medieval type worldview, the connectedness of things, the susceptibility of the self to certain things. And then you have this buffered self, which is the essence of humanism. Man is the measure of all things. What's going on inside of me, what I broadcast out onto the world is the truest sense of who I am. That's a great way to explain it. And and porous self is not just an old idea. Many of you who are listening to this are live in this world. And that's simply the sense, and I'm going to exaggerate just a little bit, but you'll get the idea that there is a real reality outside of me. I'm a person, I'm a self, and I interact with a world that's actually real, that deserves to be made sense of. And in fact, would require some things that I can't see to make sense of this world. In other words, how did he get here? Well, I think there's a creator, something I can't see. In other words, I, I, I accept the reality of the real world outside me. A buffered self, on the other hand, and again, I'm exaggerating just a little bit, you get the idea, is the realist reality is me. It starts with the self. I don't have to come to terms with reality. Reality needs to come to terms with me. And that the reality out there is only as real as my reaction to it. So, for example, you might take a, a point of view, and this philosophy is very around, very much around today, is it's not what happens to you, it's how you react to what happens to you. That's a buffered self. That says that the reality out there is not as real as what's inside me. So I don't know if that helps clarify that a little bit, but there are people walking around today that are very poor self. They were like, no, there's actually a real world out there and I've got to make mm -hmm. some sense of that real world. And I can't just make sense of it by my reactions and my feelings about it. The buffered self says, no, I'm, I'm in control of that. And my reactions to the world are the most real, as you said, the most real things about this universe. Yeah, um, let me add one more angle of this that will make sense of a lot of what you see going on in our world today. The poorest self is a self that is defined communally and relationally. So yes. sometimes you see this more in Eastern cultures, certainly in the ancient Near East, in the biblical world, you saw this, that who you are is defined by the relationships that, that you have and the culture that you live in. Um, there's a collective in the identity, and the collective is more important than the individual. Um, whereas the buffered self is an identity that is defined actually in the absence of a communal identity. So you define yourself to the community and then the community respects that. Whereas in the poorest self or in really the entire world up until about 200 years ago, you were essentially defined by the community and you did your best to conform to community standards. What's so applicable about this, it sounds pretty theoretical, but what, what's so applicable about this in the modern world is the way that we approach things like stigma 
and um, public morality. So in the in in the poorest self, you would have certain modes of being and conduct that you would abide by. So let's take sexuality, for example, which is a, which is a easy easy thing for us. You wouldn't do or talk about if you did certain behaviors because the whole community would say, that's not right. You shouldn't do that. That's aberrant. That's, you know, that's not who we are. That's not what we do. And you wouldn't do those things anymore. Now what happens is people feel uh, bad about the things that they do. And instead of saying, I probably shouldn't do those things, they blame the community for putting a stigma on it. I wouldn't feel so bad about this if people hadn't stigmatized certain behaviors that are true to who I am, and people need to accept that. That's what that's essentially what's happened in the so in the sexual revolution is we've gone from community norms that traditionally followed basic Christian norms for sexuality to individualism, which would say I should be able to do love operate in any way that I want to. And if that rubs people the wrong way, the problem is with them, not with me. That That's a very clear illustration of the difference between the poorest self and the buffered self. The poorest self would take on the, the rules and the norms of the community. The buffered self imposes their own expression of themselves onto the community, who then in turn needs to respect what they're expressing. That's exactly right. And we, you see that when you explain it that way, you can see it around you everywhere. This ties into a concept from another book. Uh, Carl Truman wrote a book. I can't remember if we talked about this one, but The Making of the Modern Self and the concept of expressive individualism. And this is a very buffered self concept. Expressive individualism is what you just said. It says that how I feel and how I define myself is the truest part of me. And you, the community, need to accept that. Obvious example, there are many, but the most obvious is, for example, if I'm a trans man, then what I'm saying to you is, despite the outward reality of this, I am a man. And I demand that you, the community, respond to my inner true reality. And so that's very much a buffered self. And consequently, you can just see immediately that the buffered self is going to have conflict around the idea of community and engagement with other people. And so you will tend to see fragmenting into smaller and smaller little community groups who are willing to affirm one another's inward reality. So the, the sense of community and cohesion that any culture, any nation, any church relies on for its being, the communal idea, this idea of the buffered self is at war with what we traditionally think of as community. Mm -hmm. I, I want to make two comments on that. It, the first one goes back to how we probably encountered Charles Taylor. One of the great uh, explainers of Charles Taylor in our day, outside of James K. Smith, is Tim Keller. Keller right. was a very uh, close reader of a secular age. I think in Colin Hansen's book, it says when he first encountered it, he read it through cover to cover. And when he got done, immediately opened it and read it back through cover to cover again, which again, I'm, I'm holding a copy of the paperback and it is over 800 pages. I mean, it's, it's, 
it's a lot and it had such an effect on Keller. You can start to see the way that Keller utilized these concepts from Taylor to talk about the world that he lived in and to talk about the drastic relief of the gospel in a secular age. So to, to the point that you were just making, um, one of the things that you'll hear Keller say that comes straight from an application of, of Taylor's book. Now, this isn't a this isn't an application that Taylor would necessarily make, but one that Keller makes from his analysis is the gospel gives us a received identity. In yes. fact, the most important thing about who you are if you're a Christian is what God says about you, not what you say about you. Now, part of the Christian life is learning to say about ourselves the things that God says about us. But actually, there's a very direct reversal of the buffered self in the gospel, which is you, at your core, if you're in Christ, are a child of God. You are a sinner who's been forgiven. You've been given grace. You have a future. You have an end to which your life is going. Those things are very foreign to the buffered self. You are part of a community now of people who are the saints, the people of God, and your responsibility is to love them as you love your own self. That, again, radically different from the buffered self worldview. And so you can see Keller and others making these really uh, insightful applications of how the gospel shines in a secular age. What I was what I was kind of, kind of surprised about in Taylor's book because Taylor, I, I think we would say Taylor is writing from a Christian perspective, Christian worldview. Certainly not an evangelical by any means, but right. um, he, he he has some real nuggets in terms of apologetic and cultural commentary. One of them at the very beginning of the book, I found this just fascinating, is he uses this term fullness to describe life in, and, and this is not to say that everything about the poorest self is right. I'm not saying by any means that we should go back to the medieval worldview uh, in, in totality, but, but freedom from the buffered self certainly is one of the things that he describes as fullness or life outside of secularity, fullness. And he says, the unbeliever wants to be the kind of person for whom life is fully satisfying, in which all of him can rejoice, and in which this whole sense of fullness can find an adequate object. But, and this is life in the secular age, he is not there yet. Either he's not really living the constitutive meanings of his life fully, he's not really happy in his marriage, he's not really fulfilled in his job, or confident that this job really conduces to the benefit of humankind, or else he's reasonably confident that on the basis of all of these, contrary to his express view, he will not be able to find the fullness of peace and satisfaction and completeness in his life. In other words, there is something he aspires to beyond where he is. Perhaps he hasn't yet fully conquered the nostalgia for something transcendent. In fact, I think uh, I think James K. Smith's book, I don't have it in front of me, but I, I think James K. Smith's book starts with a quote from Julian Barnes, who said yes. in his memoir, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Right. That is that that is an illustration of the buffered self. That is life in a secular age, especially as, as Christians. We need to point out the fact that you can deny God all you want, live in the secular age. And you can do it really well, but at root, there will always be a part of you that is longing for something transcendent. 
And as Christians, when we think about walking with people that don't know God, we should be very sensitive to the fact that that is the world that they're experiencing. And at the right time in the right place, there will be a moment where that fullness, the longing for that fullness pops Mm -hmm. through. And uh, they may try to, again, what, what he says, conquer that nostalgia of the transcendent as a bygone kind of naive way of viewing the world. But we can also come along and say, actually, like C.S. Lewis did, your desire for things that are not in this world might point to the fact that there is something beyond this world. That's a really good point. And, you know, this segues into something else I know that you want to talk about from Taylor is if you think about Julian Barnes, he said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And then you think to yourself, well, hey, that's easy. Just believe. It's easy to believe. I mean, we're sitting on this side and we go, hey, how easy can it be to believe? But you know what? It's not for him. Let's just accept the fact that he says, I wish I could believe, but I don't believe. There are barriers in our culture to believe. We tend to think that there are barriers to not be Christian. But I think in the secular age, there are what are called bulwarks that you have to get over to believe. So from Julian Barnes' point of view, there are actually hurdles he has to jump in order to believe. And that's a little backwards from the way we've thought about the world up to now. But in a secular age, there are bulwarks to belief. And mm-hmm. you might want to explain that idea and what Taylor says about that, because that was, to me, it was like, yes, I don't see that. But in a secular age, that's the reality for a lot of people walking around. Yeah, that, that's a big section of Taylor's book is it, when you're telling the story of secularity, you have to encounter the bulwarks of belief. That is the things that would keep you like bumpers at the bowling alley from going off the uh, transcendent enchanted world and into the secular world. It, so in 1500, for example, it was far easier to believe than to not believe. In fact, socially, it was that way. Religiously, it was that way. Politically, it was that way. Now, it is far easier in secular places to not believe than to believe. And so you have bulwarks on in in both systems. And I've just got a copy of this book called Bulwarks of Unbelief. It's by a guy named Joseph Minich. And uh, essentially, that's what he's talking about, is we now live in in a scenario where the tables have turned. And for a secular person, there are significant things that would keep them in unbelief as opposed to things that would keep them in belief. And his book is basically uh, the absence of God, the perceived absence of God. So where it's actually more likely that secularity is true, as we talked about earlier, all those resources that have been developed, it's actually easier to believe those things than it is to believe in God. And then uh, the role of technology in our life. And uh, those things function as bulwarks of unbelief. I agree. You know, everything you think about in our society, we've pushed suffering back. It still happens, but we pushed it back and we don't face the immediacy of the reality of suffering that many people in the world do. And consequently, uh, we, we have a little barrier. Our comfort, our very comfort and affluence becomes a barrier to get us to belief. So if Julian Barnes lived in Somalia and was hungry and reality was biting back and he had to realize that my little buffered self is living in a real world and this real world is realer than I thought it was because I don't have enough to eat. 
then all of a sudden those barriers break down and you say, you know what? My worldview doesn't make sense of this. I need something bigger. I need something transcendent. But as long as you've got comfort in uh, the first world, that's one of the reasons you see that there are options to Christianity. And I might as well take those because, frankly, I don't need Christianity to explain my world. And Mm -hmm. so that becomes a barrier. And so Julian Barnes needs to get over that. But if Julian Barnes lived in Somalia, I suspect he would not have as big a barrier to look to the real world and have to come to terms with it. Certainly. Yeah. And that, that leads to the the final concept I want to talk about in this book. What you've just described is the imminent frame. This is something that uh, Taylor goes into later in the book where you begin to live your life as if the explanations for your life are all imminent. Imminent. We need to probably define the word imminent. This is, not imminent as in coming soon. This is imminent as in very close. It is pressing upon you. It is imminent. The imminent frame is that you live in a completely bounded world in in the sense that all the explanations, all the experience, all of the imaginaries that you have can be explained by things that are bound up in the human experience, in imminent explanations for that. Yes, it's eminence with an A. And the idea is that you can make sense of your world by appealing to nothing that goes beyond this world. And as you can understand why you and I might say, actually, you can't. Well, but if you have a buffered self and you think that reality out there is not as real as the one inside me, well, that makes it easier. The opposite of that is a transcendent frame. And that is where, for example, you and I inhabit, and we say uh, we live in a real world, and we can explain parts of it, but actually to make sense and purpose out of life, we need something beyond this world, because in and of itself, my imminent little world, the universe I live in, the country I live in, the people I'm around, I can't find all the answers to life in that. I actually Mm -hmm. need to appeal to something transcendent, something that's beyond the imminent piece. But a buffered self, I think, can probably find its answers either inside itself or in the world very near around it. And so that's a big difference. I I think that's understanding that is key to evangelism. It's key to relating to people who are walking around in a world that doesn't have any need for anything beyond what they can see and feel and get on their smartphone. Mm -hmm. You know, you said earlier that uh, one of the components of the secular worldview is that, and I think you were talking about the Dawkins quote, that it's now uh, intellectually satisfying and you're intellectually capable of being an atheist. When we talk about the imminent frame in the world today, I think we might riff on that a little bit and say we live in a world now where it is emotionally satisfying to be an atheist. And while I don't think that most people that find themselves in this position would define themselves as atheists per se, just define themselves as nothing. They see no need to take a stance one way or the other on whether or not there is a God or something transcendent. In fact, most of these people would not consider themselves materialists in the sense that nothing transcendent exists. They prefer just to make it up as they go. That's where the therapeutic side of all of this, the emotionally satisfying part of all this is you actually don't need to provide any answers to this. 
You can just make it up as you go along. You you can essentially believe what is convenient and satisfying to believe in the moment. That is truly life in the imminent frame, that you are now the arbiter of what you need to and not need to believe, not just what you believe, but whether or not you need to make a belief at all about something. That's exactly right. You know, you may remember the statistics just a few years ago, what were called the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And this was a survey and younger people were identifying themselves as is like, well, are you this? Are you an atheist? Are you religious? Are you this? And they're like, none of the above. I'll make it up like you're saying, I'll make it up as I'm going along. The other interesting thing is this ties into something that people very much know, and that's called the therapeutic paradigm. If Think about this for a minute. If you're living in an imminent frame, meaning this world is really pretty much all I need to make sense of the world, and frankly, inside me makes sense of most of the world, that's pretty much how I feel, how I feel about myself. You say, is there meaning in your life? Well, I feel like there is. Uh, In other words, when you get to that, now all of a sudden, I don't need a priest anymore to help me relate to the transcendent God. What I need is a therapist to help me feel good about myself. And that's Mm -hmm. the therapeutic world is therapists are the priests of that world. I don't have sin anymore. Who could I sin against? There's no Mm -hmm. transcendent God for me to disobey his rules. What I might have, though, is dysfunction or sickness that's making me unhappy. Discomfort. And so I no longer have a spiritual element, which is relating to some transcendent being. I kind of just need a therapeutic thing, like make sure I feel good. Cure me of my sickness. And you see that all around us, the whole psychotherapeutic worldview. We're just immersed in a psychotherapeutic view of the world. It flows very naturally from the buffered self living in a little imminent, self-contained world. Yeah, it can it can start to get kind of depressing talking about this as the state of our world. And you can certainly see certain themes if you're on social media, if you're watching the news, if you're consuming any kind of um, movies and TV and uh, you know any anything that's coming out of the cultural centers of our country, they are broadcasting life in the imminent frame. They're they're broadcasting the buffered self. It makes you step back though and say, okay, so what what are we going to do about this? You know what what are our options here? What we have this knowledge of the situation that we find ourselves in, how does that help us move forward? And it reminds me of a talk that James K. Smith gave that's very similar to some of the things in his book, uh, How Not to Be Secular. And I believe now, I'll have to look and see if I can still find this talk out there somewhere, but I believe it was called Cracks in the Secular. Yeah. Or maybe it was called Planting Planting Gardens in the Cracks of the Secular. So it was, it was a beautiful image like that. And what he was essentially talking about, the imminent the imminent frame is like living in a very small bounded reality. But the problem is reality isn't as small as that bounded reality. It's much bigger. And certain things like beauty and the desires of the heart and suffering and love and justice, these things are almost like little punctures in the imminent frame. They're, They're like little cracks in the secular. And what we as Christians do is when we are talking with somebody or when we're talking about our faith, we should take advantage of cracks in the secular. 
We should we yes. should take advantage of the fact that uh, there's light shining into this dim, imminent frame, a transcendent light that's shining through these cracks. And we should point to something beyond the imminent frame. And, and a lot of the way that we talk about our faith, the way that we teach the Bible, ways that we go about having conversations with people should in some ways, I think the way James K. Smith puts it, plant little seeds that will produce plants that yes. pop up in the cracks of the secular. It's just, and, and you know when that happens, it's like a sidewalk where the plant begins to grow and expand and the crack gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And you see that there's actually something living underneath. That's the way a lot of modern apologetics is going to happen. It's, re- it's deeply relational. It's about meaning and um, satisfaction more than it is just intellectual belief. And it's over time. It's that slow growth through the crack um, that has been opened up somewhere in the worldview that God begins yes. to shine in. And that that's where a lot of our apologetics and relational discipleship is going to take place in the coming years. Yeah, I have two thoughts about that. You're right on. Uh, one, to me, th- this comes back to the essence of truth in two ways. First of all, you know, Jesus speaks, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, the truth will set you free. I came to testify to the truth, and everyone who is on the side of truth follows me. Jesus had a lot to say about truth, and I perceive Smith's comments in this way. An imminent frame, a buffered self, all my meaning comes from inside me. First of all, it's not fundamentally true. And sooner or later, there will be cracks start to develop. And when those cracks happen, plant a seed of truth, because an imminent frame can't really explain the world. It really can't buffer you from reality, not forever. And when those times come, when you realize, wait a minute, my little world has been shaken and my therapeutic uh, worldview can't make me feel good. And all of a sudden I realize there's a reality out there that's very, very real indeed. I think we then enter that and we say, here is a piece of truth that will make sense of it. This is a little oblique, but since you and I were talking about Keller a few days ago, properly understood, in my opinion, this is what Keller was actually trying to do. When Keller Mm -hmm. said to people, look, I believe in human rights, you believe in human rights. But actually, your little, I'm going to use these terms, your little imminent frame and your little buffered self, there's no place in there for human rights. Let me plant a little seed from a transcendent worldview that says, but you know what? With a God, there is a reason Mm -hmm. for human rights. I think he was about the business, to use this framework, he was about the business of just planting truth seeds in the cracks in the sidewalk. I think that's that to me is what Keller was doing was in that. Second point is as you walk about your life living in your Christian frame, which is way bigger than a little imminent frame, and you live a life that it's not all about me. In other words, I'm serving the community. My reality isn't formed by me and my feelings about me. It's God's thoughts about me, and I'm a new creature in Christ. As you go about living that, you are fundamentally testifying to a life that sooner or later, by contrast, is going to make that imminent frame look very selfish, very small, and very lacking. And so I think it's important for us to live out 
the reality of what we believe boldly, because I think that people tend to learn by comparison. And I think people living in those imminent frames are going to see, wait a minute, that guy seems to have a better explanation for the world than I do, because my mm -hmm. explanation keeps breaking down. Mm hmm. Yeah, I would I would agree with you on both of those things, especially the part about what Tim Keller was trying to do. If you read his most recent book, Forgive, the last book he wrote, uh, published before he died, he starts he uses this phrase and I've seen him use it other places, but he really I think he, he really started using this prominently in this book to describe the phenomenon you're talking about. When he talks about forgiveness, he'll say something like the Christian worldview gives you the resources, the spiritual resources for forgiveness that the secular worldview actually doesn't have. That worldview doesn't have the resources you need for forgiveness. Right. You don't have divine justice that will end up making all things right. So you can refuse to take justice. It doesn't have the sense of worth. It doesn't have a sense of humility. There aren't uh, the pieces of a worldview that would constitute a framework for something like forgiveness. And he talked about that all through that book. But but Keller had been doing the same thing with justice, with human rights, right. with you name yes. it, human dignity, um, influenced largely by Charles Taylor. And, and I think we should adopt that language of mm -hmm. the transcendent worldview, the enchanted world that we live in, gives us the spiritual resources for the things that the Bible teaches us and the ways that we were designed to live. And we should be offering those spiritual resources for ends that people already know they want. Back to that fullness concept. Mm -hmm. They are longing for something they can't seem to figure out how to find and we have the spiritual resources through the Christian worldview, which we believe is the true worldview, to get you there. So you were you were created with longings for certain transcendent things, and the imminent frame blocks off the ability to get to those things. We should be offering the spiritual resources that we have to show people that there's life beyond the imminent frame, beyond the secular age. Uh, in fact, there is an enchanted world that God created and is present and so present that he sent his son to come and take on human flesh and live in this world. That That is the destruction of the imminent frame. And that is the hope that we have as Christians. And it is the perfect spiritual resource to bring into an increasingly secular age. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.